Hello friends, welcome or welcome back. You're listening to Strictly Crime with me, Alex. It is officially the end of March. I am so excited for the warm weather to be hopefully coming soon. Last week it literally snowed. I don't know what is going on here in Ohio because it snowed last week and today it's supposed to be 70 degrees and it's just very bipolar. The weather doesn't know what it wants to do. I just want some warm weather for once. I've just been hanging at home with my dogs and my family and as you guys know, last week we went over a horrific case all about the death of Emmett Till. So this week I wanted to bring a survival story because that one was really disheartening. It had a terrible outcome, obviously. So I wanted to bring a survival case and that is the case of Elizabeth Smart. She survived nine months in captivity being held hostage against her will and she was able to be freed and it's a truly amazing story i watched a couple documentaries and i definitely cried because it is so amazing that she was able to overcome this and turn it into something good so if you guys want to hear all about elizabeth smart and how she was able to break free from being in captivity for nine months keep listening going to get into the survival of Elizabeth Smart. And I know I did a couple episodes back all about Elizabeth Short, so I don't want you guys to get these two people confused. This is Elizabeth Smart, and this story happened in the 2000s. So, Elizabeth, she was born on November 3rd, 1987. She has five siblings, so she lived in a pretty big family, She and she grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was very involved in school, and her greatest passion was playing the harp. I don't, I mean, I would assume playing the harp is very difficult because not many people play it, but it sounds so beautiful to me. I think it is amazing that she played that because it's a more unique instrument. I thought that was awesome. She began playing at the age of five years old and she practiced for hours every single day. As a kid, she was very respectful, smart, obedient, but she was a little shy, of course. Her parents were quite successful and they lived what seemed to be a very good, happy, everyday American life. They were pretty religious. I think they were part of their they are still a part of LDS, I believe, which is the Mormon community. And they lived in a beautiful big home and they were just really faithful and just they seemed like amazing family. Very average, awesome family. However, on the night of June 4th, 2002, Elizabeth and her family, they had a pretty hectic day. I mean, the school had just came to an end. Elizabeth was supposed to receive some awards at school for the end of the year, and she was even going to play her harp for the whole entire school. They ate dinner before they left, but in a rush of it all, Elizabeth's mom when she was making dinner had accidentally burnt the potatoes so she had opened a window to vent out all the smoke and the terrible scent elizabeth's grandfather had actually died not too long before all of this had taken place and so they just had his funeral so there had been a lot going on at this time i mean 
especially with having five kids, your dad, your grandfather dies, that's a lot to handle as parents, you know? So they were just having a crazy day. So they hurried up and ate and rushed to school. Everything went well with the program. And after that, the children went home, went up to their rooms to wind down. And Elizabeth and her sister read a book. I think it was a fairy tale book in the documentary. It said it was really cute. Um, But they were reading a book and they actually shared a room. Then they decided to roll over and go to sleep. The next thing that Elizabeth remembers was that she heard some sort of voice. She thought it was like a part of a dream because she was kind of half asleep. And so she just thought it was a part of some sort of dream. But then she was woken up to it and there was a shadowy man. He explained that he had a knife and told her to get up. She could feel the knife at her neck. So she hopped up out of bed and followed him. Obviously, she didn't want to get her with that knife. So she just went with the man. She asked him, why was he doing this? And he told her that she is being taken hostage. And that if she screamed, he would kill her and her whole family. She was just hoping that her parents would hear something and would come and save her. One of the smarts, one of smarts abductors, which was Brian David Mitchell. I'm going to give you guys his background. He is like the guy that took her from her home. He was born on October 18th. 1953 in Salt Lake City, the third of six children and also a Mormon family. His mother was a teacher and his father was a social worker. In order to teach Mitchell about sex, his father reportedly showed his son explicit photos from a media, uh, medical journal Sorry, in order to teach him about independence. He would drive Brian to unfamiliar parts of Salt Lake City, drop him off, and leave him to find his way home. So it kind of seemed like he had somewhat of an abusive household. At 16, um, Mitchell actually exposed himself to a child child and was sent to a juvenile hall. At 19, he married and had two children with Karen Minor, who was three years younger than him, making her 16 years old at the time. After their divorce, Minor was awarded custody of both children, after which Um, Brian temporarily fled with the children to New Hampshire. He resided in New Hampshire for two years, where he joined a Hare Krishna commune. He had a history of drug and alcohol abuse in his adult life. Upon returning to Salt Lake City, he was inspired to seek sobriety by his brother, who had recently returned from a mission. In Salt Lake City, Brian had two additional children with his second wife, Debbie, who herself had three children from a previous marriage. Debbie alleged uh, that Brian had been abusive during their marriage, and so they divorced in 1984. After their separation, Debbie alleged that Mitchell had sexually abused their three-year-old son. The claim could not be medically confirmed, but Brian Mitchell's future visitations with his children were ordered to be supervised by the Division of Child and Family Services. One of Debbie's daughters from her previous marriage would later claim that Brian Mitchell had sexually abused her for four years. On the day that Brian Mitchell and Debbie's divorce was finalized, he married Wanda Elaine Barzi, and she is a big part of this case as well. 
She was born on November 6, 1945, also in Salt Lake. She was uh, a then uh, 40-year-old divorcee, and she had six children. Barzi had a troubled relationship with her children. One of her daughters would later refer to her as a monster, and she would also claim that when she was a child, Wanda uh, fed her pet rabbit to her for dinner. Together, Brian Mitchell and Wanda Barzi were actively involved in the LDS church. Eventually, Brian Mitchell began going by the name Emmanuel, claiming to be a prophet of God who experienced prophetic visions. For this, he was uh, excommunicated from the church. Wanda Barzi began going by the name, um, oh my gosh, Hefe. Hefaziba? I don't know. Um, and then they would like panhandle and preach in downtown Salt Lake City. Brian Mitchell presented himself in an image that was, he tried to kind of look like Jesus, dressing in white robes and tunics, and he grew a really long beard. Um, now going back to this night, Elizabeth's sister was sharing the room like we said with her. She was f- so frightened and she wanted to get up, but was scared that Brian Mitchell was like waiting out there or something and would grab her. So she was trying to build up the courage to go and tell her parents. After about, I think it was two hours, they said, she finally went to their room and told them that someone had taken Elizabeth. They were startled, obviously, jumped out of bed and could not, they thought she was like having a dream and they could not believe what she was saying. They looked all over the house, in the garage, like everywhere, and they could not find her anywhere. Elizabeth's mother realized that the windows she left cracked, that it was cut. The screen was cut out and she screamed. They immediately called the police and their family members to have anyone help. By 5 a.m., there was um, quite a bit of people out searching. Now, Elizabeth and Brian Mitchell, who goes by Emmanuel, um, they had left the house and they started walking down the road. A police car had actually passed them, but the police didn't stop or anything. So, once the police drove past them, he made Elizabeth and himself, they started running up the trail that was right by Elizabeth's home. They just kept going and going and running. And Elizabeth was trying to reason with the guy to let her go. She had finally just like, please like, let me go. And then she realized that she recognized this guy. He had been Um, out asking for work and like money and stuff like panhandling like we said and ended up doing a job at the family's home and the next time that she saw him she only saw him like this one time and the next time was that fateful night they ran all the way up the mountain like if you look up pictures and documentaries it is this huge huge space of trees and wildlife and forest and they went all the way pretty much up to the top Once they entered the trees and got to where there was this camp, there was a tent, and then there was Brian's wife. And she seemed very scary to Elizabeth, almost like a witch. She was forced to take off all her clothes and put on a robe. And she was unfortunately raped and, quote, married to the man. And she was chained so she could not run. Now, Brian Mitchell had, like, this weird 
like he thought that he was some sort of prophet right so he he would say like um oh it's god's it's god's will that you will marry me and you know this and that so it wasn't a real marriage obviously but he pretty much said that elizabeth and him were now married so police took the whole family into question them and mary catherine who had seen the abductor take her sister they were there for hours. I mean, they said they were there for like the whole entire day, just hours and hours and hours. And Elizabeth's mom, Lois, was quite concerned for Mary Catherine because she had seen something so terrifying. And now she was pretty much being interrogated at nine years old. Of course, they're going to ask her questions, but she needed that support from her mother and that comfort. And she was just kind of interrogated and Lois was like pretty scared about this because she didn't want to make Mary Catherine traumatized you know obviously she's gonna be scared and stuff but she didn't want her to be too upset and you know kind of shaken by all this so she Mary Catherine had described the man as Caucasian about 5'8 and was wearing light-colored light colored clothes and a hat, but she couldn't really describe the hat very well. Now, if you look at pictures of Brian Mitchell, you can kind of see the hat that she was probably talking about. It's like this weird sort of like cap thing. Um, and that she also said that she thought he had a gun, but it was later confirmed that it was a knife, not a gun. She also said that the voice sounded familiar but she could not identify identify or like pinpoint who it was. The family did have an alarm system, but it was known to be a little bit faulty and they didn't set it all the time because it would go off like unannounced sometimes like when it shouldn't have been going off and it was kind of annoying. So of course that night, I don't think that it was set or something like that, but of course the family was looked into because a lot of times families can be involved in these type of things like um you know for like ransoms or stuff like that they i don't know why i mean people are sick they want to just pretend but this was not that case this was very real they were given polygraph tests and later some of the family members had failed the test but this could be due to the fact that these people, I think it was the people that didn't pass were the dad and the uncle, I think. I'm not sure. But these people had not slept in like three to five days. Like literally had not slept, like hallucinating almost. So they're probably not in their right state of mind to take a test like that. And also they probably felt guilty. Like they were not guilty in the way that they took her, but they felt guilty and like maybe they could have prevented this or something. So that could also be a reason why they maybe have failed. And polygraph tests, like we've went over before, are kind of nor here nor there. To me, obviously they're not admissible in court. So to me, they're just it's just like an extra step. Now, as we go further into the story and we learn what actually happens, obviously the family had nothing to do with this. And polygraph in this case, it it just doesn't help. So this is why polygraphs are not very trustworthy. And as we will see what actually happens to her, the family did nothing. 
cadaver dogs were brought into the house to make sure that Elizabeth really was not in the home or hiding somewhere or being put somewhere. Because if you guys know the story with uh, John Bonnet Ramsey, her body was like hidden in the basement or something like that. Um, she was like hanging and the family didn't find her for hours later. So it's kind of something like that. They just wanted to make sure she wasn't in there somewhere and she wasn't. So searches went on for days and weeks and months and thousands of people went looking for her. I mean, seriously, it was a a huge amount of people. Her parents felt that she was alive somewhere. Helicopters and dogs searched and they unfortunately did not find her. She said about the third day that she was there in the camp, she heard a voice calling her name, but she didn't call out in fear because, you know, she was scared that she was going to get killed. This guy, obviously, he looks pretty scary. Like, his, he's got big old eyes, and he just looks like a scary guy. She was, sh- like, v- so much fear, and so she didn't call out because he was, like, literally standing there with a knife, like, I'm going to kill you, so don't speak, pretty much. So she didn't say anything, and the voices quickly dissipated. They never found her up there. After there were no more helicopters flying around, Elizabeth felt like she had been forgotten and that she would never be found. The man who was later identified as Brian David Mitchell made Elizabeth drink wine often so he could rape her. She tried to resist, but he used religion against her and pretty much said like, oh, well, Jesus or whoever participated, oh, you think you're better than Christ? Are you Christ-like? You think you're better than God? And so she just kind of gave in and he also wouldn't let her drink water or eat or even sleep unless she obeyed and drank the wine anyway. So she was given the wine and stuff, so it was easier to rape her, unfortunately. He spewed on about capturing other girls so he could have more, quote, wives. Oh, it's disgusting. Investigators made a list of all the people who worked on the Smarts house because they had a huge house, like I said. And they had a lot of contractors and, like, handymans that came and worked on their house. So they tried to make a list of all the people who worked on the house so they could get any potential leads. One man caught their eye due to his criminal history. Richard Reese was a handyman who worked on the house. He was familiar with the children and he had a also a long history of drug abuse and was in jail most of his life. He was out of jail at the time of her disappearance and had stolen previously from the family before. So they kind of had looked into him a bit. About a month after her going missing, police polygraphed Richard and he did have an alibi from his wife who said that they were sleeping in bed at the time. Mary Catherine also confirmed it wasn't the man she saw. She did only get like a small glimpse of the man, but she said it wasn't him. So one night, so they kind of just ruled him out pretty much. One night, Brian spoke of where his mom had lived and Elizabeth had accidentally said that that's the area where her cousin also lived. Then, days later, Brian told Elizabeth that God had told him that his next wife was to be Elizabeth's cousin. I think her name is Olivia. And Elizabeth was so upset and she was so, felt so guilty about this because she had accidentally 
you know, pretty much gave the area where her own cousin lived. So Brian had left the camp that night with the same knife he kidnapped Elizabeth with. And Elizabeth's cousin was pretty much almost broken into, but the person who had done this, it wasn't confirmed that it was Brian Mitchell, but obviously from the story that we hear from Elizabeth and from the investigators at the time, it was probably him, but they don't know. So whoever this person did, um, that did this, they had accidentally knocked over, I think it was some picture frames and it woke up the family. So the intruder left without being identified and but it was the same MO and they believed it had to be the same man or like some sick joke because they were related to Elizabeth Smart and also it was like cut in the same, the, the um, window had been like cut in the same way. It was just, it was freaky. So he did not get her cousin, thank God. They could also confirm that Richard Reese was not the man because he was actually in custody at the time that this second quote um, abduction almost happened so it wasn't him and they eventually ruled him out he actually ended up dying as well in prison of an aneurysm and this made everyone want to search harder and really find Elizabeth I mean they were set that it was this guy Richard Reese for a long time and even after he died and all of this police like wanted it to be him like they would not look at any other leads for a while because they just wanted it to be this guy and as we find out it wasn't him this guy had nothing to do with it and the nine months there were that she was missing there were thousands of leads and all of them except one at the very end came up dead ends there was instances where bodies were found as and animal bones they said that they found a dog body and they thought it was a human but none of them were elizabeth and i'm sure this was pretty disheartening and also it was i mean it was a it was so much land to cover so it was really hard for them to search every single square inch of this huge mountain and forest you know what i mean for over a month elizabeth was stuck in the camp tied up by it was like a wire with a bolt so she couldn't like cut the wire i mean there was nothing for her to cut the wire with anyways so she was like bolted to this cable and could not leave the camp one day brian and wanda his real wife or whoever she was they had a fight about him being able to leave like he was allowed to leave and could eat and he could go wherever he wanted and they just had to stay at the camp left behind and pretty much starve so he decided they were all going to put on masked robes and they headed for salt lake city i will put pictures up on the strictly crime instagram definitely go follow and you can see kind of what they were wearing. Um, it was an all-white robe, and it also had a mask. They were ahead of their time back then, I guess. But yeah, they were wearing like these masks, so you couldn't see Elizabeth's face. So they went down to Salt Lake City, and Elizabeth was threatened that if she tried to run or speak, like literally speak at all, like she was had to be dead silent, that he would kill her. 
unfortunately. So she had recalled that people didn't really look at them and they were not really noticed too much. I mean, people kind of looked away. They probably thought these these guys are kind of creepy. So they just kind of went on with their business. No one really stared too much at Elizabeth. One night, a cashier had told the three about like this party that was going on. So Brian decided to take the two girls there pictures of this event are actually taken of the night and looking back at this it seems very eerie and scary and you can just see that she looks petrified I mean she's like she had never been to it she was 14 years old she had never been to a party like this I mean they said in the documentary that I watched on YouTube I think that they said that there were like like fire shows and they're all drinking alcohol and drugs you know all this she had never seen any of that before so she was very frightened and she was just at some big party and you can look up the pictures nobody knew who these people were and at the time it seemed innocent but now it's definitely creepy to see those type of pictures elizabeth like i said had never experienced something like this so she was real scared and witnesses say that the man which we know as brian was very aggressive and obnoxious and him and the two girls were later escorted out because of his behavior later in august 2002 they had went to a library to look at some maps because brian wanted to move to california or somewhere warm so they could survive the winter so while they were at the library a detective had actually approached them and asked if he could speak with them and he said that he had received some sort of call and Elizabeth did not speak because Wanda Barzi's hand had like literally grasped her leg she had like full grasp on her leg like shut up do not speak do not look just put your head down and be quiet so Elizabeth couldn't say anything she was scared to death and obviously she was very impressionable at 14 so she was pretty much just controlled by these people and a lot of people ask her why didn't you speak up why didn't you run away why didn't you do this it's like she didn't want to die she was obeying because she wanted to survive i mean what what would have happened if she did try to run away she could have got stabbed you know what i mean so she stayed obedient so that she could hopefully survive this the detective asked to see elizabeth's face so he could just confirm it was not her and he could go about his day but brian mitchell insisted that because it was a religious practice that he was not allowed to look and you know the detective could not force it because you can't just pull up someone's mask unless it's like an emergency because there's a lot of um people who are muslim that wear masks and you know veils and stuff and a police officer can't just pull up their their headscarf you know what i mean like that's that's not cool so he just had to leave i mean there was nothing he could do unfortunately elizabeth at the time felt so unseen and she just kind of at that point just wanted to give up i mean i cannot imagine how she felt during this time she was so close to freedom yet so far if she had been rescued that day it would have saved her six months of captivity Brian Mitchell was so proud after this, of course, and he felt invincible, like he could just take on the whole entire world because he was able to pretty much manipulate detectives. They quickly left the library after this, though, because he was shooken up, and he returned Elizabeth to the camp. 
Brian had panhandled for a few weeks until he earned enough money for three bus tickets to San Diego. And meanwhile, her family was trying to grieve, like, they were trying to decide, should we keep looking for her and keep this going, or should we move on and grieve her what maybe could be her death? Because as we know, a lot of times, especially with children being abducted and stuff like that, after 48 hours or a week, your child is probably deceased so they're trying to kind of decide like what should we do is she still out there and they're just trying to try to figure out what they should do usually things like this can break up couples and they did have other children so it was really hard for them to be strong and continue and just be like this these powerhouses you know what i mean but They did stay strong and they kept searching and they kept hope and they stayed together as well for years to come. Around October 2002, Brian, Wanda, and Elizabeth had gotten on a bus to Southern California. Elizabeth was made to sit by the window so she would not be seen and they ended up staying in Lakeside, which is kind of, she described it as like the camp was like the swampy, gross type of area. There, Brian made Elizabeth drink a lot, and she. This is when she started like withdrawing, because it had been quite a bit of months at this time, and she was, she was starting to feel the effects of being abducted. You know what I mean? Like the longer it goes on, it kind of feels like, am I ever gonna get rescued? And so she said that if alcohol was available, she took it because she wanted to be numbed. She rather be messed up and raped than be fully sober and coherent you know what I mean and I totally understand her pain and why she would do something like that because she just wanted to be numbed back in Salt Lake City at the time Mary Catherine she actually remembered who voice she was hearing at the night on that night she realized that it was a man named Emmanuel which is what he went by and that was obviously the name that Brian chose to use for some reason. He had, like I said, worked on their roof because he was homeless and they decided to offer him a quick job for some cash. And he had spoke to the family and said that he was a born again Christian, he was sober, and they kind of just described him as just a guy that seemed down on his luck and just trying to get his life together. He only worked one day for the family, and he was supposed to go again and work for them, but he never showed up. So, they only saw him that one day, but on that one day that he was there, he was able to see where all of the windows and entry points were. Police questioned Mary Catherine, and she couldn't confirm 100% that it was him, but she really thought that it could be him. Police asked the family to keep this private, which they did for some time, But police didn't want Brian to, like, hear about this and then have him run or go into hiding even further than he was. So, at the time, they didn't know it was Brian, but they didn't want this guy to go into hiding even more. Um, But eventually, nothing was being done in Elizabeth's case, so they brought the man to the media's attention. And what comes next is amazing. So we're going to quickly pause for an ad break and we're going to come right back and you guys are going to hear how Elizabeth is able to be freed. 
So Elizabeth Smart's father, Ed Smart, he was kind of fed up. He, like I said, brought this guy, a, quote, a manual, as they knew him by, to the media's attention, which the police did not want him to do, but he did not care. He actually went to John Walsh, which works for America's Most Wanted, and told him that the police wanted it to, they wanted it to be Richard Reesey, and the family was considering kind of closing the case because it had been so long, and police drilled it into them that Richard Reesey did this, but John Walsh told Ed that the odds were against them, you know, it had been quite a long time, but if Ed truly thought that Elizabeth was alive, then they would air the news about Brian Mitchell, which at that time was Emmanuel. They were criticized hugely by law enforcement, but two weeks after the news aired, there came a lead. Now, Lisa Holbrook, or Holbrook, sorry, um, was Brian Mitchell's sister. Now, she had saw, I believe it was a sketch or something like that, and she came forward and gave Emmanuel's real name, so police started looking into him. In February 2003, this was early February, Brian was being tracked down for questioning regarding her disappearance, and back at the camp in California, Brian would go what he called ministering, which was just panhandling, um... And the two girls would starve back at the camp. One time, Brian did not come back for three days, and Elizabeth could barely sit up. She said that she was so weak, and she even, there was like this hole where they went to the bathroom, and she said she even looked in there because she had thought that she threw some like orange peel away, but it was kind of like just diminished at that point. She was literally going to eat that orange peel that was covered in poop because she felt like she was on the urge of dying and she said that she had came at peace with it but then it started to rain and they started drinking the rainwater and were washed up and she felt a lot better and then brian had returned that same day with some kfc so this was a terrifying moment for her she thought she's about to die but finally she gets some food in october of 2000 um two um mary kate mary Catherine, not mary kate um she like i said realized that this guy was brian and the family was so happy because they didn't want to like push any information out of mary Catherine. so when she came forward with this the police were very hesitant like i said because it had been so long like October like um June to October and so they're like is this real but it had took her all that time to process because she was so young to realize who it was one month after the recovery of Elizabeth the state of Utah had superseded superseded the then existing Rachel alert with the nationwide amber alert child abduction alert system and part to confirm to conform with recently implemented nationwide procedures although the rachel alert was this kind of alert system that they had the system had seen some success in the two years of it its existence and they kind of just conform that to make it a little bit better so that's awesome and 
that is great that they were able to make that. Now, back at the camp, when Elizabeth um, had reunited with Emmanuel or Brian, I don't know like what to call him, but his name is Brian Mitchell. Um, he actually explained to the two girls that he had been arrested for trying to steal from a convenience store and he also broke into a church. So many believed that if he couldn't even steal like some beer, how could he go through with this like huge mastermind plan? But Brian's ex-wife had called America's Most Wanted and explained to them that he went by the name Emmanuel and he was a street preacher. She also told them that he had what she called a psycho girlfriend or wife, whatever she was, named Wanda Barzi, and that he had molested her child who was his stepdaughter at the time. After this flood of information, they actually started to look more into him and finally went on some sort of like manhunt to find all of them. Both of them, I mean, because they, they didn't know if Elizabeth was with this guy, but they wanted to find him just to make sure. A store clerk had told the detectives that these people came in frequently, but it wasn't two of them. It was three of them. So this was a huge piece of information. This is where they're like, Elizabeth has to be with these people. In March of 2003, Brian had spoke of moving again and Elizabeth was pretty scared because she's like, he was, I think, saying that they were going to move to like New York or some crazy place far away from her home. So she was like, you know what? I'm going to be just like Brian and I'm going to manipulate him. And that's exactly what she did. She was able to manipulate him and into moving back to Salt Lake. She explained that God had told her and she asked Brian to speak to God about it because she had just this feeling that they were supposed to go back to Salt Lake. And he actually agreed the next day. And so they started hitchhiking back to Utah. But they, no one picked them up, so they actually ended up getting on a bus, and she said that a man had started, like, questioning Brian on the bus about why Elizabeth was wearing a, like, gray-haired wig. Like, what is that about? So, at the next stop, they all got off the bus. I mean, he was, like, freaked out because she obviously looked, like, crazy. She had this weird old person wig on. She just, it, she looked out of place. On March 12th, 2003, Brian Mitchell was spotted with a woman and a girl in Sandy, Utah, by two separate couples who had seen photos of Brian Mitchell on the news. The woman was Wanda Barzi, and the girl was Elizabeth Smart, disguised in a gray wig, sunglasses, and veil. Both couples reported their recognition of Brian Mitchell to the Sandy Police Department, which immediately dispatched police officers to the location. Elizabeth says the next thing that she remembers is police pulling up beside them and questioning them about who they were. Is this Brian? And Brian just tried to deflect, gave them a fake name for all of them, and was just trying to get away from these cops. Now, they took Elizabeth to the side to speak to her, and she gave them a fake story because she was so conditioned and controlled and scared, and this is what she was told to do. So she gave them a fake story and she told the police, I think she was from Florida or something like that. And she wanted to be rescued, but she had spent nine months being abused and threatened. So she was just in this 
brainwashed state still, you know? She denied she was Elizabeth Smart for 45 minutes until she was taken into the police car. And finally, they told her, like, this is your last chance to say if this is you. And she had said, quote, thou sayest, because she said that while living with these two, they spoke in, like, weird kind of Bible language. And she kind of kind of started speaking like that too so instead of saying like yes i am she said thou sayest which confirmed that it was her at the police station elizabeth had explained what happened and brian mitchell and wanda barzi were arrested she was reunited with her parents but she was pretty distant at first i mean she was had gone through so much and was still scared i'm sure but she finally embraced them and elizabeth smart had spent nine months captive and was now finally saved there was a huge celebration all over the country all over her town and it's truly amazing the court actually requested that brian mitchell went um he like would undergo a competency evaluation based on his claims of being a religious prophet while awaiting the evaluation brian mitchell was incarcerated at the utah state hospital Stephen Golding, a psychologist hired by the defense, distinguished between zealous belief and delusion and concluded that Brian Mitchell's beliefs transcended zeal and were in fact delusional. It was Golding's opinion that Brian Mitchell was not competent to stand trial as a result of his delusions. But the court, however, overruled his opinion and found Brian Mitchell to be competent in 2004. Plea negotiations subsequently began between the defense and the prosecution. The defendant was willing to plead guilty to kidnapping and burglary for a 10 to 15 year sentence on condition that Elizabeth Smart should not testify. The prosecution refused to drop sexual assault charges against him and no agreement was reached. On October 15, 2004, plea negotiations had still not been determined and there was no agreement yet, uh, yet made, so the defense had appealed as late as October 21st, asking the prosecution to rethink their position in terms of what they were offering Brian Mitchell. Up until this point, the defense did not highlight breakdown in uh, competency as a contributing factor to the plea negotiations they cited the lack of a coming to an agreement as being the result of the sole discretion of their client the appeal was subsequently rejected jennifer scheme a psychologist who initially stated that brian mitchell was competent interviewed brian mitchell again per the defense's request in 2005 after this interview heidi uh, bucci Brian Mitchell's attorney filed a brief stating that Brian Mitchell was no longer competent to stand trial. Brian Mitchell subsequently began to act out in court while jail staff observed no change in his behavior and thought process. Ultimately, Judge Judy Atherton agreed with the defense, asserting that Brian Mitchell's behavior reflected psychosis. The defendant re-entered Utah State Hospital on August 11, 2005 and remained there until 2008. While in the hospital, no staff experienced Brian Mitchell as being paranoid or in a pathological sense. 
in 2006, a bill went before Utah legislator to allow prosecutors to apply for forcible medication on defendants to restore their competency to face trial. Permission to forcibly medicate Wanda Barzi was also sought relying upon the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Cell v. United States, and this was in 2003, which permits medication when the states can demonstrate a compelling interest in serving by restoring a person's competency and that the medication would not harm the person or prevent him from defending himself. In June 2006, a Utah judge approved to the forcible medication of Barzee so that she could stand trial. On December 18th, 2006, Brian Mitchell was again declared unfit to stand trial again in the Utah State Courts after screaming at a judge during a hearing to forsake those robes and kneel in the dust. Doctors had been trying to treat him without drugs, but Prosecutor Kent Morgan said after the scene in court that a request was likely to be made for permission to forcibly administer those drugs. On December 12, 2008, it was reported that Brian Mitchell could not legally be forcibly medicated by the state of Utah to attempt to restore his mental capacity or competency, sorry, also claiming that it is unnecessary and needlessly harsh and therefore a violation of the Utah state um, constitution to prolong trials proceeding to this length. The case was eventually transferred to the federal court in 2008, and issues of the competency proved to be, like, the whole part of this case. Um, The court held a hearing on Brian Mitchell's competency on October 1st, 2009, and November 30th through December 11th, 2009. On one occasion during a hearing in October, it was reported that he, Brian, had bursts of singing hymns in court. During one of these hearings, Elizabeth Smart described Brian Mitchell as smart, articulate, evil, wicked, manipulative, sneaky, selfish, greedy. He, she said that he was not religious, not close to God, and not spiritual. So he was just like this creep who was just exploiting religion. They did conduct many more evaluations, and Gardner, who was um, one of the people that had done this, he maintained that he believed Brian Mitchell was fully aware of his actions and was attempting to deceive the court. Wellner, another witness in the case, reviewed 210 sources and 57 separate interviews, including Brian Mitchell and his wife, Wanda, his family, and Elizabeth Smart. The court credited Wellner with presenting a 206-page report. Wellner uh, appointed that Mitchell was competent to stand trial and diagnosed him with pedophilia, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, alcohol abuse, and a lot more. Wellner believed that Brian Mitchell was highly manipulative and used his religious expression as a way to coax people into overlooking his high function and dismissing him as delusional, which is probably what he wanted. So, after all this, Wanda Barzi, she actually eventually just pled guilty and was sentenced to concurrent terms of 15 years in state and federal prison. However, due to delays and mental mental evaluations, it took 
Brian Mitchell's case almost eight years to come to court, but Wanda had already went to jail. Brian Mitchell's trial began on November 8th, 2010, and they acknowledged that Brian Mitchell was responsible for his crimes, but they said that he was legally insane at the time of his crime and should therefore be found not guilty by reason of insanity. The insanity defense for Brian Mitchell was rejected on December 11, 2010, where the jury found him guilty of kidnapping and transporting a minor across state lines with intent to engage in sexual activity. U.S. District Judge Dale A. Kimball sentenced Brian Mitchell to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Brian Mitchell is currently serving his sentence, sentences at U.S. Penitentiary uh, Terry Holt, a high-security federal prison in Terry Holt, in Holt, Indiana, which is one state over for me. That's kind of creepy that he's right there. In 2016, Wanda Barzi's federal imprisonment was terminated and she was transferred from uh, Federal Medical Center Carswell in Fort Worth, Texas to a Utah state prison in Draper, Utah to begin serving her state prison sentence. On September 11, 2018, the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole announced that Wanda Barzi was scheduled to be released on September 19th because the board had failed to give her credit for time served in federal prison. Elizabeth protested this, but on September 19th, 2018, after serving only nine years in prison, 72-year-old Barzi is released from prison, and she will be on parole under federal um, supervision for five years, so that ends next year, apparently, in 2023. Upon release, she is a registered sex offender in the city of Utah, and on December 31st, 2018, three months after she was released, it is revealed that she is actually was living near a Salt Lake City elementary school. There appears to be no restrictions to how close she can live to a school, but Utah State did rule that she is not allowed to go on school property. Now, here is some aftermath of what amazing accomplishments um, Elizabeth was able to kind of bring out on march 8th 2006 this was three years after she was freed she actually went before the united states congress to support sexual predator legislation and the amber alert system that we said she spoke after signing um the adam walsh act in may 2008 she traveled to washington dc where she helped present a book you're not alone published by the u.s department of justice It contained entries from her as well as four other recovered young adults. In 2009, she competed on the... She commented on the kidnapping of J.C. Lee Duggard, stressing the dwelling upon the past is unproductive. In um, October of 2009, she had spoke at the 2009 Women's Conference in California and she kind of spoke about overcoming obstacles in life. In 2011, she founded the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which aims to bring hope and end victimization and exploitation of sexual assault through prevention, recovery, and advocacy. In 2011, Smart was also one of one of four women awarded the Diane Von Furstenberg Award which is awesome. In July 2011, ABC News announced that she would work as a commentator for them, mainly focusing on missing persons. 
in 2012, she had um, the Theta Phi Alpha National Fraternity honored her with a Cena Medal Award, which is from her college, I believe. The medal is the highest honor the organization bestows upon a non-member. Oh, okay. She was not a member. They named it after their patroness, St. Catherine of Siena. On in May 2013, she did a speech at the Human, Traf- Human Trafficking Conference at John Hopkins University. She discussed the need to emphasize individual self-worth and in fighting human trafficking and the importance of dispelling cultural myths surrounding girls' loss of value upon sexual contact. Having been raped by her captor, she recalled the destructive impact of exposure to the terrible sexual um, education programs. Many of them teach that a sexual active girl is kind of like a chewed piece of gum, which is true, but very upsetting. So she kind of is trying to say that just because I was raped doesn't mean I'm less. She is taking back her body and taking back her rights and definitely advocating for so many people around her. She has done so much and for victims and people all over the country. On June 5th, 2017, on the 15th anniversary of her abduction, Lifetime aired the made-for-TV film titled I Am Elizabeth Smart, and it was narrated and produced by her, and it tells the kidnapping from her perspective. So there was a, that movie was published. Um, she graduated from BYU and is now married with three kids. She is an activist and journalist who helps other young people and brings awareness to what happened to her and how we can hopefully end things like this from happening. It is amazing that she started her her nonprofit organization can help so many victims and families. In 2021, she actually competed on the Masked Dancer as Moth, and she was eliminated, though, during the third episode series, but I think I thought that was kind of cool that she's still in the media today. She was a, a couple more films, The Elizabeth Smart Story, which was directed by Bobby Roth. Um, that was based on the book Bringing Elizabeth Home. There was also the film um, from the Lifetime mo- that Lifetime movie I spoke of as well. So there's been a couple movies and obviously quite a few documentaries that have been um, made about her. The Smart family actually published a book, Bringing Elizabeth Home, and Tom, uh, Elizabeth's uncle, Tom Smart, he co-authored a book with, um, with this news journalist, and it's titled In Plain Sight, The Startling Truth Behind the Elizabeth Smart Investigation. And this book actually criticizes the investigation process by the Salt Lake City Police Department, as well as nothing, as well as noting the media influences that lead to her successful recovery. Um, they had said that, you know, if they didn't push for Brian to be looked at that she could have maybe never been found because they didn't want to believe that it was Brian they wanted to believe that it was this other guy Richard um so if they pretty much said like if we had not 
pushed and pushed and pushed if there was no one advocating for elizabeth she could have died she could have been with this guy for years to come so it's amazing that she had an such a good support system to really fight for her in 2022 elizabeth smart was the executive producer of the lifetime movie stolen by their father as a part of its ripped from the headlines feature film which talks about elizabeth uh, meredith's plan to reclaim her daughters after being kept in greece by elizabeth's ex-husband during their visit to him so she is working on that as well this year so she's got a lot going for her she, a lot of different things that she's done in her life and she's really overcame this terrible experience and turned it into something beautiful and helpful and really is making a name for herself um obviously she's married now so she, she still does go by elizabeth smart but she's not the the elizabeth smart that was captured she is the elizabeth smart that she made you know what i mean which is truly amazing though not many people get saved elizabeth did and now she has her own life that she took back for herself i'm sure that she is still healing from all of this tragic events almost 20 years later but her story shows that with persistence many can be found alive and rescued and unfortunately because not everyone has a support group a lot of people are not found a lot of people are forgotten and with elizabeth's foundation i definitely recommend going and looking on elizabeth i believe it's the elizabethfoundation.org i definitely recommend um going and looking at that um, it's a great resource and she also has her, another website I believe some sources that I used was Wikipedia I watched part one and part two of her documentary um, on YouTube I used biography.com and I also looked at her website as well to get some information about her life um, but it is so amazing that she was able to be found and rescued and it's a great story honestly like there's no bad ending she is doing amazing in life with her children and i will definitely post pictures of her back then and today as well as the monsters who did this unfortunately wanda barzi is out of jail now i am hoping that she is doing terribly but i'm glad that elizabeth was able to reclaim her power I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next week, but definitely stay tuned to hear next week's episode. I think I'll do something cool. We'll, we'll figure it out, but definitely stay tuned for that one. Rate me on Spotify and follow me on Strictly Crime Instagram and on TikTok. And I will talk to you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. See ya.